the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. With all the razzle-dazzle of big rockets and humans whizzing off to the moon, it is easy to lose sight of the small unmanned missions that will pave the way both ahead of and during the Artemis flights. In episode 6 of Lunar Science, we reveal some of those missions. I say some because there are more than can possibly be described in one program. We will limit ourselves to the NASA-funded commercial lunar payload services. This is where companies are paid to deliver science experiments to the moon. Some will orbit the moon, others will land on it. Some of these CLIPS missions are formally approved, and others are, as yet, just gleams in the eyes of their proponents. In introducing these missions, we need to introduce you to some terminology. First, CLPS, C-L-P-S. This is NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services. Second, LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, an unmanned craft that has been photographing the Moon since 2009. Third, PSR. Permanently shadowed region is a part of the moon where the sun never shines. Most are at the north and south poles, but some could be in sinkholes or crevices in other parts of the moon. ISRU means in-situ resource utilisation. In other words, using what you find or can manufacture on the moon. SKG is NASA's speak for Strategic Knowledge Gap. VIPER, the Volatiles Investigation Polar Explorer Rover. Now, volatiles are things like water ice that can be turned into a gas if heated. And PRIME, the Polar Resources Ice Mining Experiment. 
So here we go with Jared Sanders, the ISRU System Capability Lead at NASA. I'm going to primarily focus on ISRU, uh, resource and strategic knowledge gaps, but a lot of what I'm going to present from a very top-level perspective, we look at ISRU starting from resource assessment. We have two primary pathways we're interested in. What are the water and volatile resources in the permanently shadowed craters and mining them, and the extraction of oxygen and metals from regolith. Uh, that regolith, as well as some of the water and volatile products, could be used for uh, surface construction aspects and lead to the development and operation of depots, which will eventually uh, serve as customers. But the first, and to be honest, uh, probably most important step is the resource assessment. Understanding the, the water resources, the mineral resources from both a global and local perspective. So when we look at ISRU, and, and, and again, a lot of these are are common to all surface uh, system um, tools and, and equipment. We have four basic challenges that, uh, that we are examining and, and tracking. Uh, the first deals with resource challenges. There are technical challenges, there are operational challenges, and there are integration challenges. And I've under the resource challenges, which gets into a lot of our discussion, will be, you know, what are the resources where we go? Um, and what uncertainties exist with those resources in terms of the form, the amount, the distribution, are there contaminants, what's the terrain like and such. There are technical challenges that we also have to deal with in terms of the ability, is, is it actually feasible to extract and process these resources both technically and economically? And the economics is something that is uh, extremely important when we talk about whether a resource is worthwhile pursuing or not. There are operational challenges, especially when we start thinking about going into these permanently shadowed regions, the temperatures, the vacuum, the dust, the radiation, uh, the grounding and charging aspects, as well as can we achieve long-term operations uh, with minimal human uh, involvement as well as recovery from failures. And in the end, we need to make sure that whatever products we create are to the quality and quantity that the customers will eventually want. We've gone back to the strategic knowledge gaps that were created during Constellation and last reviewed um, by League in, in 2016. In some cases, we identified new strategic knowledge gaps that, that weren't originally proposed, and we are using these to understand the influence of each one of these strategic knowledge gaps from several perspectives. One is from the different ISRU um, activities. So for example, does it influence water processing and, and volatiles, uh, solar wind volatiles or oxygen extraction or, or construction and manufacturing? Or is it just something that, that impacts all of these ISRU operation? From an ISRU perspective, I mentioned the two pathways, water mining versus oxygen mining. And so, so NASA is pursuing both. However, because water itself uh, in the oxygen and the hydrogen and maybe some of the volatiles in the permanently shadowed crater are game changing on how you do your missions and how humans can be sustained on the moon and, and onto Mars, um, we've put a, a particular focus on that 
that pathway, calling it the leader. At the same time, we recognize we do have a pretty good understanding of, of the mineral minerals and, and regolith qualities um, on the moon. We've demonstrated several technologies up to TRL four and five for oxygen extraction. So while we recognize the benefits of ice mining, we also recognize that there are a lot of unknowns and uncertainties and the technology readiness level is lower. So we're following that pathway and pursuing oxygen extraction from regolith at the same time. The idea being that you start with precursors and demonstrations to help understand the resources and, and the technology operations and eventually lead to an end-to-end -end pilot plant where we're producing a product, maybe hundreds or thousands of kilograms over an extended period of time in a non-mission critical role. In both of those pathways, we have questions that we need to address. In the water pathway, obviously the first question is, are there su su uh, sufficient quantities and concentrations of ice at the location that we would like to start mining at? Can we get to them You know, into and out of the PSRs? Uh, can we actually acquire the material on the subsurface? And then can we actually extract these resources, the water and volatile resources, and turn them into pure oxygen and hydrogen that can be used or, or water that crew can drink? The oxygen pathway is a little bit simpler. It's more along the lines of can we operate for extended periods of time and what are the performance attributes um, and can we get the oxygen purity that we want? Following both of those, we will eventually make a decision on which of the two pathways we go with the pilot plant. And the pilot plant will basically define, can we produce significant quantities uh, and store them for potential use? And can we operate for extended periods of times up to a year, five years under these harsh environments? So this is a pathway of these types of activity. We're already developing ground technologies for oxygen extraction and water ice mining. We have two missions on the books for starting to understand the resources from a surface perspective, Prime One and Viper, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. We also are considering a sequence of demonstrations for both mining uh, water and oxygen, as well as surface activities like excavation and construction in the mid-2000 timeframe, leading to our pilot plant deployment towards the end uh, when we start thinking about sustained operations in 2020. At the same time, this team looked at what is, what is the philosophy and what is the approach that we should start taking to make these resource assessments in the measurements that we need to, starting with the orbital measurements, what types of landed measurements do we need to take and the types of missions, and how do they all interact with these ISRU demonstrations that I mentioned that eventually get us to this pilot plant at the end of the decade. The good thing is, is that we've already started a lot of the, the missions needed. LRO has been in orbit for quite some time, providing an amazing amount of information on the lunar surface. Um, we have several missions uh, that are planned and, uh, and ready to go. In the case of the three CubeSats are, are very close to, uh, to being ready for the Artemis One demonstration mission. Those will help us identify uh, the resources in permanently shadowed craters better, as well as the minerals uh, that uh, we may 
want to use for oxygen extraction. Um, Lunar Trailblazer is is under study at the moment, and the uh, there's a shadow cam on a Korean orbiter that we plan on flying. We also have surface missions. The CLIPS missions have been selected with a number of instruments that are of interest for ISRU, resource and, and surface uh, understanding. And then two particular missions, as I mentioned, Prime 1 and Viper. Viper is a mobile platform. It has a drill to bring material to the surface. Uh, it has a mass spec that will sniff any volatiles that are released. It has a infrared spectrometer that will look at the minerals and any volatiles and ice that may cling to the uh, to the minerals as an, a neutron spectrometer to help us locate where the potential water resources are. This mission is designed to last for several months and traverse tens of kilometers and is planned for the end of 2023. As a way to buy down the risk of that mission, STMD is flying Prime 1, which is the Trident auger drill and the mass spectrometer in 2022. This is a stationary lander. It will operate for a short period of time, but it will feed into Viper. Now, Viper will provide tremendous information. Thank you. A CubeSat is a small satellite where size is a multiple of a cubic decimeter. That is 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters. 1U is just that size. 2U is twice that. And 6U, six times. Despite their small size, modern electronics makes them extremely capable, even at lunar distances. Now, I need to explain that MER is the Mars Exploration Rovers, and MSL is the Mars Science Laboratory Curiosity that has been trundling across Mars for a decade. Now we're going to hear from Mike Provenzano, the Director of Planetary Mobility at Astrobiotic. He's going to talk about Cube Rover. He did this in 2020. I'm going to talk a little bit more about our mobility services at Astrobiotic. So I run our planetary mobility group. I'm Mike Provenzano, and uh, we build lots of different rovers. Uh, we created mobility as a service. It's, a, it's an offering that we've added on. It's kind of the last mile delivery for our lunar landers. So Astrobotic built lunar landers. We also built software and sensing solutions, and we also build rovers. And we really looked at rovers as a way to enable the last mile delivery because we're seeing a lot of demand uh, for science instruments and technology demonstrations that would perform not just on a lander, but beyond a uh, lander's range. So this is our cube rover that you see here. We actually just delivered uh, an engineering unit of our cube rover to the Kennedy Space Center, and they are unboxing it and getting ready to drive it around um, and test it, uh, which is going to enhance kind of the information they're giving to us so we can improve our product line. The new cube rover, this is kind of cube rover 2.0, um, we're funded to develop this under a tipping point contract, uh, which is going to flight qualify the rover and enable it so that it could be ready for use and flight on upcoming missions, not just on astrobotics landers, but on uh, other CLIPS uh, vendors uh, landers as well. We have two contracts right now where we're developing two different sizes of our cube rovers. We have a 2U, a 4U, and a 6U. Um, the reason why we call it cube rover is actually because it's based off the CubeSat sizing standard. 
Uh, underneath in that payload envelope, you see that little rectangular box. That's actually just a, a 3D printed box to, to show what a payload would look like mounted underneath it. Um, but that payload bay is the same size as what the equivalent would be for a 2U CubeSat on our 2U Cube Rover. And, you know, same thing for 4U and 6U. So that uh, each, each U of the rover is a 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter and can carry up to one kilogram of payload mass. And then we charge, uh, our, our business model is that we charge per uh, kilogram of mobile payload delivery. Underneath our rover on the left, that's a, a company we're working with called Radiation Detection Technologies. And they're building a neutron detector that would work underneath our 4U cube rover. And then on the right is uh, we're working with Ohio State University. They're developing a ground penetrating radar antenna that would mount underneath our rover. And that would also be used with uh, radar equipment, um, potentially by JPL or, or other groups that could build radar equipment. But lots of different uh, applications, and I'll, I'll show more about possible payloads as well. So this is the Cube Rover in a nutshell. It's essentially just a chassis with uh, a top and bottom. The batteries are on the bottom, at least in the current configuration. And then our uh, electronics board is mapped to the top. And the top of that chassis acts as a radiator. That's how we get rid of our, our heat, anything that's generated from inside the rover. We have a front and rear facing camera. The front-facing camera helps us determine where we're going, and the rear-facing camera helps us understand where we came from. Uh, and that's really just localization algorithms to understand where we are relative to known objects like a lunar lander, which we can program into the rover to understand the geometry and the pose so we know how far away we are from it and at what angle. Uh, and then it's uh, four motors, uh, four, uh, four independently driven wheels, and it has a solar panel as well it's not articulated uh, in the horizontal motion, but it can be articulated in the vertical motion. So it can be used for equatorial or polar missions. Um, and then we communicate through Wi-Fi to the lander. So right now our current range of our, kind of our, our first variation of Cube Rover is that we could go up to 100 meters away from the lander. Um, we do, we are going to be increasing that range because there are many science experiments that would benefit from increased range. There are many ways we could do that by adding masted antennas or by doing uh, multi-agent autonomy um, or eventually uh, when there's uh, LunaNet as uh, one of the lunar constellations to help you know, relay information, that could be another way to extend the trafficability of these rovers. But for now, we, we operate within the Wi-Fi range of a lander, which in our current configuration is about 100 meters away from the lander. So we're also working closely with JPL we're leveraging their smart vision system and we're calling it adaptive image compression. Uh, they've deployed this on the MER missions before um, and uh, MSL missions as well, where they uh, essentially, the way we would use this is we could take uh, high resolution images of science data when needed autonomously, but also take low resolution images while we're driving. We may not necessarily need high resolution images all the time. And the rover is smart enough to determine when it would need that. There are a lot of applications we're talking to a lot of different groups. Eileen Yinkst is the principal investigator of the Heimdall camera system. She works at the Planetary Science Institute. In 2020 August, she explained the camera system to us. Uh, so I'm uh, very pleased to be here. I am the principal investigator for the Heimdall camera system. 
And I would like to also point out that Heimdall is a name, it's not an acronym. Heimdall is a, a four CMOS camera system, uh, RGB cameras, plus a DVR, a digital video recorder. It will be flying on one of the CLIPS landers meant to launch in December of 2022. Uh, the four cameras are approximately 80 by 60 degrees field of view. Uh, the descent imager, or affectionately known as Heidi, is a, a camera pointing straight down to uh, image the, uh, the landing plume. It will get 500 microns per pixel on the surface and of course coarser resolution uh, depending on its altitude. It's a panoramic imager that is designed to map geologic context at five millimeters per pixel at a distance of 10 meters. That uh, improves obviously as you get closer to the imager. A regolith imager will yield high resolution imaging of, not surprisingly, the regolith at about 35 microns per pixel. And then there's a workspace imager as well, and that's uh, meant to document the activities of other instruments, including uh, the sampler arm. The arm is uh, courtesy of Maxar, uh, the, uh, the folks who brought you the MER IDD, that is the arms that were uh, operational on Spirit and Opportunity. So the panoramic and the regular imagers are mounted on that arm. The descent imager and the workspace imager are mounted on the spacecraft body. So we were asked to provide a couple of top questions for the lunar surface, and these not surprisingly dovetail into our science objectives. Firstly, how does the lunar regolith behave during human-induced interaction? And this means anything from uh, plume regolith interaction during the descent and landing to uh, an astronaut dragging her gloved hand through the regolith as she's on the surface to um, instruments being um, de deployed on that surface to, say, a scoop that's scooping up samples of the surface. And the second question, how can we navigate efficiently remotely on the lunar surface? So we have experience doing that on Mars and to actually to a lesser extent on the moon, but we need to be able to understand the terrain that we are driving through. If we're going to have a, a semi-autonomous or an autonomous rover, we need to be able to navigate autonomously, and that means having a very clear 3D understanding of the surface that we're driving on. The science objectives for Heimdall, we intend to characterize and map the landing site at multiple scales to give us geologic context. We intend to record and model interaction between the regolith and the landing plume uh, to characterize that regolith and to provide that ground truth to support uh, autonomous navigation software uh, for future landing. So going through each of these science objectives very, very briefly, Heimdall is also designed to help characterize uh, plume landing uh, regolith interaction. That one of the things that is really of interest to us is being able to get a quantitative assessment of what's going on as, as the spacecraft is landing. Some of our best data is from the Apollo era, and in some cases, the best data that we have is freeze frames of videos that have to be coupled with the recording of the astronauts calling out um, altitudes. And that's, that's the best data that we have. So one of the things we're really hoping to be able to do is to quantify a lot of that data to uh, fill in uh, plume models much better. We want to be able to understand uh, the characterization of the regolith uh, 
Uh, the regolith is the product of a complex set of mechanisms. Uh, you've got endogenic, you've got exogenic, you've got impact melt, um, all laterally and vertically mixed. So what we want to do is to be able to resolve the larger fraction, uh, size fraction of the regolith grains. So the idea is to be able to look at size distribution, particle shape, cohesion, slope stability, and maybe even trafficability. And the cool thing is that the regolith imager will be able to uh, give you complementary data to the descent imager so you can pin those two together. So in summary, for the two questions that we feel are some of the top questions about the lunar surface, Heimdall will be able to address both of those questions. Uh, the descent imager is going to give us images of the plume regolith interaction that will give us digital quantitative information specifically designed to feed into plume modeling. The regolith imager will give us um, images of the soil, potentially undisturbed depending on how much activity uh, we get from, from the landing plume, but at least because it's mounted on the arm, it will allow us to kind of choose where we want to be able to take those images so that we can tie it to what we've seen in the descent imager. And then the workspace imager is going to be able to document the interaction between the surface and the sampler instrument and any other instruments that might come through that workspace. In terms of navigating efficiently, the panoramic imager will allow us to get stereo images uh, translated through the arm. We'll be able to do that here. We'll be able to translate the arm from image to image so that we can get stereo images of the surface so that we can feed those into uh, uh, autonomous navigation software that's being developed for future missions. That's all I have. Walter Johnson, an undergraduate physics student at the University of Colorado, has this exciting description of the great Lunar Expedition for Everyone. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is John Walker Johnson. Um, I'm an undergraduate physics student at the University of Colorado. Um, I'm the science team lead for GLEE, or the Great Lunar Expedition for Everyone. I'm very excited to talk to you about our, um, our mission today. So as an overview, GLEE, or the Great Lunar Expedition for Everyone, is a undergraduate-led lunar mission uh, essentially hosted by the Colorado Space Grant Consortium. Essentially, our mission is to send 500 lunasats, or Arduino-based satellites, to the surface of the moon in 2023 um, in order to conduct fundamental lunar science, um, act as a technology demonstration, as well as a educational outreach program. Once we land on the moon via um, Eclipse Lander, um, we'll go through a checkout process. We'll essentially be deployed, and so throughout the mission life, they'll be uh, taking scientific data before hopefully being retrieved by um, Artemis crew. So Lunasats, or these uh, tiny Arduino-based satellites, were derived from a um, uh, essentially a chipset, which was another Arduino-based satellite designed by Mason Peck, uh, Zach Manchester, Hunter Adams. Um, essentially, these small Arduino-based satellites have a, a lot of wonderful advantages compared to uh, conventional scientific satellites. Uh, essentially, these Arduino-based satellites use commercial off-the-shelf components. This essentially allows for cheaper satellite construction, uh, much faster development, and reduced uh, congenital obsolescence. So essentially, um, better technology is deployed as quickly as possible. That is to say, these are not without challenges. Um, these commercial sensors and these much smaller sensors tend to have smaller signal-to-noise ratios, um, which does cause some problems when looking at science cases, but uh, they tend to provide plenty of benefits. Uh, so for an overview of our timeline, 
Uh, this year, we plan on finishing developing our Lunasats and deployer hardware uh, before in 2021, we'll be sending our Lunasats to teams all over the world. Uh, these teams are going to be composed of high school and college level students that will essentially design a mission for each Lunasat. Um, in 2022, we will be bringing all Lunasats back to the Colorado Space Grant Consortium. We're there, we'll take the 500 Lunasats, integrate them into our deployer. In 2023, we'll be taking our deployer to our lander, uh, integrating that onto the lander, and then this will be launched to the moon. So for an overview of GLEE's mission objectives, uh, we have three primary objectives. The first and primary being STEM engagement, and the next two being technology demonstration, as well as uh, fundamental lunar science. So for the first one, STEM engagement, uh, as Glee is the great lunar expedition for everyone, we truly do want to engage teams from all over the world. Um, our, our goal is, I believe, something like 190 countries, and essentially we will be allowing teams that could not have access to space exploration or space science will essentially be giving them a platform uh, to conduct fundamental lunar science. Um, our next objective is a technology demonstration. Um, essentially, we're going to be looking at the feasibility and capability of using these uh, distributed networks of small uh, sensing environments to see how we can use an ensemble of tiny satellites in order to learn more about the lunar surface and the scientific environment that we're studying. Additionally, our third goal is the um, uh, essentially conducting fundamental lunar science. So when these lunasats are deployed on the lunar surface, uh, we would like to apply the sensors in every way that we can in order to um, learn new information and gain insights into the lunar environment and the lunar surface. For how we're getting to the moon and how we're funded, um, as of right now, uh, Glee is funded through the NASA Artemis Core Technologies Grant. Uh, this provides funding for um, missions interested in uh, space technology, uh, human exploration, and STEM engagement. And in order to essentially get Glee to the moon, uh, we plan on having our deployer um, catch a ride on a um, commercial lunar payload services or Eclipse lander. Um, these flights start in 2021. Um, we've been working with a few companies to see if we can secure a spot on the lander. Uh, essentially, these Lunasats are 5 centimeter by 5 centimeter by 1.7 millimeter um, Arduino-based satellites. Um, on board these satellites, they have integrated solar panels, multiple scientific sensors to create a scientific sensing suite, um, as well as RF and radio communication hardware to allow for wireless communication between each Lunasat as well as between Lunasats and the lander. Because these are Arduino-based, uh, super easy to program, um, and essentially a great opportunity to allow uh, teams to begin exploring the, the lunar surface. Um, next, for our, our sensor suite, we have two classes of sensors. So the first class of sensors is called our standard sensors, where essentially every Lunasat will have these standard sensors. Um, these standard sensors are a temperature sensor for monitoring onboard temperature. Um, a magnetometer for measuring external magnetic fields, and an accelerometer for detecting static acceleration values, as well as um, any uh, transient events. Um, our second sensor class is going to be optional sensors, where essentially uh, the Glee team has gone through, identified a few um, very interesting sensors that we will essentially allow teams to um, request to be integrated onto their Lunasat. So as of right now, um, we're, we're looking at infrared thermopiles, capacitive sensors, uh, dust detection, uh, as well as radiation sensors, and a few more. Uh, additionally, we are very excited to be able to put a network of scientific sensors over the lunar surface. So for our first standard sensor overview, uh, we've selected a commercial off-the-shelf magnetometer. Um, it has 1200 nanotesla measurement range. Um, it's a tunneling magnetoresistance magnetometer. Uh, we plan on using this to uh, measure the static as well as any transient events in the uh, magnetic field. 
Previous magnetic field experiments have been conducted by the Apollo missions, many of which had Apollo surface magnetometers, as well as Apollo 12 had a sub-satellite magnetometer that was deployed over Reiner Gamma. Um, and estimates put that around um, 1,000 nanotesla on the surface, so it's absolutely something we might be able to characterize and um, inform more on. Uh, additionally, we'd like to use our magnetometer to detect any transient events, uh, changes in magnetization from uh, solar events, um, as well as any thermal or uh, geo events. Uh, for our second standard sensor, we have another commercial off-the-shelf sensor. Uh, this is an accelerometer, the ICM-20602. Um, it's a variable capacitance uh, microelectronic uh, mechanical sensor, as well as uh, possibly measure any transient events, um, any micrometeorite impacts by chance, or any seismic events uh, we'd like to detect. For one of our optional sensors, we're looking at infrared thermopiles. Uh, this would be used to look at uh, regolith temperature and essentially also monitor onboard temperature. We also have been um, exploring capacitive sensors. Um, we disassembled a uh, off-the-shelf capacitive sensor and ended up designing our own capacitive sensor where we can measure the uh, dielectric constant uh, and relative primitivity of any object that we place our sensor on top of. Um, so this will also be an optional sensor that we can allow teams to integrate. Um, we could use this to learn more about swirl composition and potentially swirl uh, formation. Thank you very much. And here's a promotional message by Chris Kohler for the Great Lunar Expedition for Everyone. The launch of that is, of course, planned for 2023. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Words have power, and those words have inspired me my entire life. Hi, my name is Chris Kaler. I'm the director of NASA's Colorado Space Grant Consortium here at the University of Colorado Boulder in wonderful Colorado. I wasn't even part of the world when President Kennedy's speech was made, but the Apollo program that followed put my life on a trajectory to have me where I am today. As we celebrate the 50th anniversary of Apollo, Let's channel our collective inspiration and excitement for that mission into something new that will honor the people that made humanity's first exploration of the moon possible and to fully engage the next. Glee, the great lunar expedition for everyone, will put 500 of these built by students from every country in the United Nations doing local and distributed science on the surface of the moon by 2023. And they'll do it for free. I have been devoting my last 27 years of my life to helping others get access to space through high altitude balloons, sounding rockets, small satellites, and engaged hands-on teaching. I have helped over 7,200 students fly something in space. But always in the background has been that speech and those missions to the moon and my desire to be a part of one. And now with Glee, I will be, and I want to take you with me. I would be honored if you would join me on this next expedition to the moon. Visit glee2023.org. Let me know you're a gleamer, and together we will reach the moon. And uh, here's another announcement about the Glee mission. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space.
The Great Lunar Expedition for Everyone is a mission that will land a scientific payload on the moon by 2023. But there is more to Glee than just landing on the moon. Glee will be an international effort. We will strive to engage participation from university students in every country in the United Nations. Glee will provide educational tools and resources to these students that will allow them to build their payload that when completed will be sent to the moon. Glee will conduct science on the lunar surface and transmit that science back to Earth for anyone to access and use. 50 years ago, the world watched Neil Armstrong take the first step on the moon. This event sparked unparalleled excitement, drove technological innovation, and inspired a generation. Past generations remember where they were when man landed on the moon. It is the goal of this mission to captivate, inspire, and encourage the next generation of explorers and to ensure they never forget where they were the day Lee lands on the moon.